0: Welcome back to Enlighten the Gospel, episode 36. I've often mentioned in these episodes that I had a group of five of us guys back in the day that tried to help each other stay out of trouble. We would get together and have good times. And there was uh, the first person I interviewed on this podcast was Willie Simons, my childhood best friend, and then John Bamman, who was one of the earlier podcasts as well, and then John Jansen, uh, and then myself, and now Abe Berg. Those five guys, we spent a lot of time together for a couple of years and really got uh, to understand each other quite well. And um, now all of us have gone into some type of ministerial type of position, whether it's preaching, teaching here on YouTube or in church groups or um, ministering and helping people that have needs. But all of us have slowly gotten saved and understood the gospel. The four of them were much sooner than myself. When they got saved, I wanted nothing to do with them. Abe Berg kind of being a bit of the ringleader of them, he got saved perhaps before the rest, uh, maybe with the exception of John Jansen. But um, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. He's he's a thinker and he's a preacher. Preaches at the local EMC church here. He's been a full-time pastor there for the last eight years and ministering for 17, 18 years plus, something like that. So thanks for tuning in. Hopefully some of you will know Abe and uh, maybe learn a few things about him. So thanks again. God bless you. five kind of got together. Willie and I were pretty much inseparable from birth. We got pictures of us together in diapers. And then John Bamman came around the scene around grade seven, so like 12, 13 years old. And then he started, we just hung out all the time. And then somehow you and I got connected, I think through my brother Neil. Neil was hanging out with you a lot. And I don't know where that started. And then I came to your place. We'd come, I'd come to your house for a night a lot. And then eventually at 15 and 16, we were going to Leamington together quite a bit and talking on the phone that night, like girls, Pretty much, like, I mean, it was pretty pretty silly sometimes. And then you and John Jansen were friends separately, and you kind of brought John into the to the mix, and then it was the whole five of us. I brought John into the fold. That's right. <laughs> we spared him. Oh, man. Isn't that something?
1: Yeah. It is interesting, like, with your brother Neil, because you're right, I did hang out with your brother Neil before I started hanging out with you.
0: He hung out with Neil, your
1: brother? But he hung out with my brother Neil, and I don't remember what happened that n- that the two neils your brother neil my brother neil why did they start drifting apart or whatever and then how did i start hanging out with your brother neil
0: yeah
1: i have some speculations, but i'm not sure if they're appropriate for this it might deal, be something to do
0: with females eh? maybe because I, think... I know th- probably the same idea with you and me because you and neil were together all the time and then i think yeah. neil probably got a girlfriend and then i was kind of there and yeah. just worked out that way
1: yeah i think i had some female acquaintances that your brother Neil. Had his eye on it,
0: and uh-huh. I think he started coming around, and yeah. can't be true. No, it can't be true. <laughs> Never. So, wow. I remember your childhood, obviously not being quite as stable. Your your parents had some issues, and I don't I don't remember a lot of details, but okay. maybe take us back and sh- what were what was childhood like growing up? You're in Elmer. Uh, actually,
1: my growing up years, uh, my formative young growing up years were Springfield. Okay. So, um, I was a year old, my parents moved to Canada. So that's over 40 years ago, born in Mexico, born in Mexico. My parents moved to Canada, to Ontario. When I was a year old, uh, they moved to tobacco country somewhere in the Langton Simcoe area, lived on a tobacco's bunkhouse, house somewhere, whatever. And, uh, but then we moved to Springfield. That was our first place that uh, was a place of our own. It was, uh, well not our own, they rented an apartment there and, um, so I think we would have lived in that apartment for probably seven ish years when it burnt down in 1990. And then we were homeless for a little bit and uh, the community rallied. Like we didn't have insurance mm-hmm. where we, we were renting an apartment, right? But uh, the community rallied around us, uh, people we didn't know. I think it was the Baptist church in Springfield. It was, uh, I think the East Elgin community assistance program in Elmer. Uh, they brought us food, they brought us clothes, they brought us toys, Hmm. and they brought my, I remember, I can remember the guy handing my parents an envelope of money, and said, there's a motel in St. Thomas, go. And so we lived in a motel for, I don't remember how long it was, it seems to me like a week or two. Okay. And then, uh, somehow we found a house to rent in Elmer, and lived in Elmer, and, uh, we lived in Elmer until, I think, 95 or 96? and then my parents bought their first place on quaker road there by the airport. okay and that's where you come
0: into the yeah picture. i remember you guys moving but that was probably when you were friends with neil and yeah. for some reason the fire has some some memory recollection there but it might be just that i remember i talking talked about, about it, it a lot yeah, probably yeah. just remember talking about it so that must have been pretty monumental though to have your house burned down oh
1: huge i'll never forget that day it's seared in my memory like we were attending the old colony christian school and uh, um my dad always went left early in the morning to go to work and mom worked full-time as well But she always brought us to school first. She brought us dropped us off at school And then she went to work don't remember where she worked at the time, but and it would have been like 830 when she dropped us off And we were only at school for like an hour and uh, We were in the first period or whatever the first class of the morning and we were in the thick of it already in our books or whatever and all of a sudden um, I think it was maybe even Herman Bergen was principal at the time comes mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. my classroom and says, Abe, your mom is here to pick you up. And I was so confused. Like, why yeah. is my mom here to pick us up? And and then once we went outside, got in the van, and my mom was bawling, and we didn't know what was going on. So from Dingo Street to Springfield, that's only six, seven-minute drive or whatever, right? And then you could see, as soon as we turned on to Hacienda, headed toward, you could see the smoke or whatever, right? Oh, and and uh, whatever. So, yeah, it was, we got there, and by the time we got there, it was probably close to 10 o'clock. And we left home a quarter after 8 in the morning. So an hour and 45 minutes later, there was nothing left. Like Somebody left all, something on? Or? They never did determine. They suspected it was an electrical fire. It was an oh, old okay. building, and so they suspected there was an electrical fire. And so, But, yeah, an hour and 45 minutes later, it was just a heap of rubble that was smoking. Hmm. Like a big building. just Everything all, you guys
0: had was gone. Everything
1: we had was gone, so. Yeah, I think my parents felt pretty hopeless.
0: I can pretty lost imagine. at
1: that time, right? And yeah,
0: probably not super acquainted with Canada yet and the language yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And then to come here and lose everything lost like that. lost everything. Yeah, that would be tough. Um, what, do, you, do you remember thinking about things like like serious consequences, eternity, God, that kind of thing at an early age? Obviously, going to old colony school, you were learning yeah. about stuff. Yeah,
1: definitely. And that's interesting, I I try sometimes to think back about how was God at work in my life in those years, or where where did I, what caused me to think about spirituality, or about religion, or about God, Mm -hmm. and obviously being brought up in a very traditional Mennonite home, uh, stuff like that, even like, yeah, there was brokenness in our home, so there wasn't a lot of intentional teaching, but still you had the prayers before meal uh, and there was still references made. So you're still in an environment where God is referenced, right? Yeah. And then, like you said, going to the old colony Christian school, uh, the books, there were very clear because of the curriculum they used or whatever. But then what's interesting for me, like on a personal level, where did, because your question is, where did I start really contemplating like eternity or, mm-hmm. or whatever, right? And somehow I don't remember... I can't really remember a time that I wasn't thinking about that stuff. It's weird. And, and I, it's not that I had this clarity in my mind about it. But somehow, I had a desire within me. And that I just... I, I, was, I never questioned whether there was a God. Mm-hmm. That was never a struggle for me. And I've still never struggled with... Definitely. I've struggled with many things. But I have never struggled with questioning whether I believe it. Is there actually a God? Or are we just... Imagining things or yeah. whatever, right? And that has never really been a struggle for me. But at a young age, some of the memories that are kind of seared in my mind about my religious thinking was more to do along the line with the line of when I would witness hypocrisy in hmm. others who claimed to have we were religious answers. Of that at a I young was, age. and I would say as young as nine and ten years old, hmm. where I would I would pick up on things. That the teachers would say at school, uh, or um, yeah, so maybe the preachers, because occasionally I think the preachers would come into our classrooms and do like a devotional. Maybe it was like, did we have it on Monday mornings? There's always a big group like school assembly, and one the preachers would do in a devotional, right, or something. Sounds vaguely familiar. Something like that, and I think like I picked up on stuff. I picked up on when the preachers would say certain things, but then on Sunday morning we go to church and I would see them come from behind the portable throwing their cigarette on the ground, mm-hmm. whatever. And, and in my mind, there's just something very wrong here. Or stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just... And I know we had... I'm not going to say names. We had some people that you know who they are, mutual friends. They got into trouble at school, and uh, their parents were quite reputable in the church. Uh, and so they kind of got in trouble with some of the church leaders. And I remember at that time how upset i was at how they were being dealt with or disciplined Mm -hmm. because all i could see was hypocrisy
0: i could see they were getting swept under the rug and stuff yeah
1: like and how our peers who were getting in trouble at school and it got bumped up to the preacher level that the preachers were asked to deal with some of these issues uh that the way they were being disciplined by the, the school leaders and the church leaders uh for that they were wearing shorts outside of school and they were caught or seen walking in town wearing shorts or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and now it became a school issue. It became a preacher mm-hmm. issue or whatever. <laughs> and it just, oh, it bothered me. And it wasn't that I was convinced that wearing shorts was okay, right or wrong. It bothered me that they were making such a spectacle of this when I witnessed or I would observe things that I knew weren't, weren't right. And somehow... You know, and I don't know. I don't recall my parents like teaching me that, right? Whatever, but somehow I always had this uh, awareness of some. At stuff. that young
0: of an age, you probably wouldn't have been able to articulate what you were seeing. Yeah. But something about it was starting to rub you that way. Eh? Yeah, definitely. Did, did you keep going to Old Colony School?
1: Uh, grade seven was my last year at Old Colony School. Okay. Um, I just
0: did one and a half years, and then Neil got us kicked out. Neil.
1: That's not surprising me on <laughs> Pete. Anyway, um, I was there. I attended Springfield Public School from kindergarten to grade three. I was at Old Colony grade four, five, six, and seven. Four so years of grade three and grade
0: two, we would have been at the school together then.
1: okay. That's interesting. Yeah, and then uh, grade seven was the last year, and then my parents pulled us out. I think it was maybe for financial reasons. They couldn't afford it. I don't okay. remember what the issue was. And then I, w- I finished grade 8 at Davenport in Elmer, and then East Elgin. Okay. How about as far as
0: church goes? Were you, did your parents consistently go to church back then?
1: They were somewhat consistent. Definitely more than the just, uh, you go on, just on Good food Friday right? and Yeah. And so it was definitely more than that. Um, uh, but I not every Sunday. But I would say in comparison, I mean... It is what it is. But in comparison to many of our peers at the time and their families, I would say that we were more frequent churchgoers okay. uh, than a lot of uh, my friends' families were.
0: Uh, I'm just thinking of the other four guys in that group. John Bamond's parents, my parents, Willie's parents, and John Jansen's parents. They would have been there every Sunday. Every Sunday. Sunday. And oh, I
1: would God. say in comparison to them, uh, I would say we would have been at 75% capacity. Okay. <laughs> in terms of attend- church attendance, right? There you go. Something like that. And see, that's another thing. That just came to my mind, um, that I remember. Uh, it drove me bonkers. Uh, I can recall on Sunday morning sometimes we get up as family, and I can distinctly remember mom asking dad, "Are we going to church this morning?" In right? oh, I mean, really? Low German, right? She would ask in Low German, "Are we going to church this morning?" And uh, uh, and dad would say, "I don't know. Who's preaching?" oh yes uh, and then mom would say I don't know who's preaching and dad would think oh it's that and that guy that's preaching yeah, and then mom would say no we're not going interesting. And, and I remember from as young as I can recall that's, that just felt wrong to me that they would decide whether or not to go to church based on who was preaching that Sunday interesting. like something felt off to me and I couldn't articulate it right
0: yeah. huh. actually when we first got married we started falling into that trap because we were, we were only there like half the time maybe and if there was two or three of the preachers preaching, we were just like, nah, we'll go out for breakfast or go to London or something, right? Mm-hmm. And we just chose a couple of preachers that we would go to to hear. But we were only an old colony for about a year after we got married. And then there was that big old colony split, right? Yeah. But anyway, through your teenage years, you kept kind of going to church. Yeah, kind of going to church.
1: And uh, so what really led me to the place where I started cognitively understanding, uh, I would say, aspects of the Word of God, uh, aspects of the Gospel, was um, uh, through my cousins in Leamington. So I had cousins in Leamington that I was very close to, grew up with them, even though we were 200 kilometers apart, but yet we got together like once a month, and they were my closest and friends. When we were years.
0: 15, 16, we went there quite a bit. Yeah,
1: we went there. So the Ungers, Abe and Willie Unger, or whatever, and they were going to uh, an evangelical church. And so uh, every time we would go there, whether it was as a family or whether it was me by myself, a little bit older, going drive either driving myself or hitch, hitching a ride with somebody. My aunt, my uncle and I were always very hospitable, both to when mm-hmm. I was younger, my family and to me. But they always had one condition. They had it for my parents and they had it for me, even when I went there by myself. And that was, you're welcome to stay here. We have a guest suite for you, but you have to go to church with us Sunday. <laughs> that was the condition. And so we never questioned it. We just went, right? And so that's, that was where I was exposed to, you know, the Bible being expounded more right. clearly. In, and uh, in, in English, so that was a big thing. Uh, was not high German, Um, so right away you're in a position to have greater understanding immediately, right, and so that's where I started, uh, I think, understanding more. Uh, Where I personally came, uh, I would say, to uh, a personal faith was uh, at a youth retreat, and so I was 16 years old, uh, and that church, they had an annual youth retreat for the youth, and and so my cousins invited me to the youth retreat and um, the speakers at the youth retreat, his name was David Overholt. To my knowledge, he is still alive. He, for years, led a church in Hamilton called Church of the Rock or Church oh, on the yeah. Rock, yeah, David I've Overholt. Yeah. Uh, they they always had Sunday evening church and they rent space. I think the, the big main theater auditorium in the university in hamilton or something okay. or whatever and uh and i don't i have no idea if that church is still going but anyway david and helen going there yeah david overholt so he was the speaker at this youth retreat and i can't even remember what exactly he was speaking on but i just remember it just clicked for me and the thing that clicked for me was that jesus died for me mm-hmm. like i i didn't Like prior to that, I'm pretty sure that I didn't, that I knew full well that I was a sinner. Like I think, uh, and just knowing myself well enough and thinking back then, I don't think my issue was coming to terms with that I'm a sinner. I think my issue was more that I knew full well was I was a sinner, but I couldn't grasp that there would that God would love me enough Mm -hmm. to die for me, and that He would actually want me, and that He would. Love me, like because I I grew up. I didn't feel loved for many reasons, right? And whatever, that's a whole other story. But uh, so, what clicked for me was that God loves me, and that when Jesus died, that was God demonstrating His love for me, and that was also my sin that I could leave them there at the cross because that's why Jesus was there. And that this whole, all this weight of guilt and shame, yeah. like I literally felt it lift off of me. Interesting. And it was
0: just, yeah. Because I think back to, again, back to mine and your experience together, I think I was probably 14 or 15 when I started hanging out with you a little mm-hmm. bit. And then in high school, we hung, we hung out together. I'd bring you sandwiches for lunch and stuff like that. Occasionally. <laughs> You'd buy them from me and then I'd go buy French fries. Anyway, um... We started spending a lot of nights together, camping out in your backyard, Mm -hmm. over by the airport, walking down the airstrip and all that kind of stuff. And we would often have these philosophical, at least to our level, philosophical type of conversations about the existence of God and what Mm -hmm. God must be like and what eternity might be like Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So we would often go there, but I always felt like when I met you, you were already much more experienced. You had already done some partying and some Mm -hmm. drinking a little bit even and Mm -hmm. maybe had some girlfriends and things like that where... I was quite naive and, and young, oh. and uh, it was you were you weren't saved yet at that point at least not as far as I recollect, but uh, the big monumental shift in our group happened when John for me anyway from my perspective when John Bamman's brother died in that accident mm. and then his mom died of a heart attack a couple of days later yeah. heartbreak right and uh, those guys came to witness us to us on the parking lot were you yeah. there no I was not because you didn't work out at the gym with us no well, I was in mm-hmm. Texas at that time already okay. So, I remember that's when all of you guys kind of were shooting in my books. And so we kind of stopped hanging out. So, it really might not have been that many years, maybe two or three years, that we really hung out. Yeah. Because when you started carrying the Bible around, I remember going to Willie Simons' place one day, going to play pool, and you came downstairs with uh, now Helen Simons. Oh, yeah. She was from Texas. Yeah. And uh, you took a bite of something, and then you felt like, oh, shoot, I was fasting. And I just thought, wow. now you were the hypocrite. I forgot about that. Because uh, if you were fasting, you wouldn't have announced it to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus says, don't do it for others to be seen of others, right? And so everything in my mind, as soon as you guys started carrying your Bibles, going to church, talking about Jesus, talking about fasting, I walked into a room once where you and Jake and Melody and a few others were having a Bible study. And it just it everything about it, I'm just judging, 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 trying okay. to figure out where are these people being hypocrites? How are they being Pharisees and Sadducees, you know? in yeah, yeah, yeah you know so uh, you, were was, looking, you were looking for a fault so oh, you could pin time. us you could pin us to the wall absolutely <laughs> and then it just kind of drove us apart right? yeah, yeah. even my best friend Willie, who I think he had a hard time with it because him and I were still close but he could see what you guys were seeing he started coming to Stratfordville Church and he heard the gospel there and got saved and then it was like, okay fine I, I have a girlfriend now so mm-hmm. I'm done with that right yeah. That Was a, a pretty monumental time for me, but I didn't know even about this Church on the Rock thing because I guess it was right at that point where we started somewhat drifting. Yeah. Pete and Helen started going there, Jake and Melody started coming yeah. to that.
1: So, but that was uh, that what you're referring to now with Pete and Helen and, and Jake and Melody that would have been three to four years after my uh, after that summer when I got saved. oh, really, because I was 16. And that with Pete and Helen and Jake and Melody, that was, I moved to Texas when I was 18. I was 19 when I moved back from Texas. Uh, Later, it was April, beginning of May when I moved back to Texas when I was 19. Later on that year in the fall sometime is when Helen uh, came, moved here and, and I think her and Pete Simon started dating and Jake and Melody uh, around the same time as well mm-hmm. and that's when they would sometimes on Sunday evenings drive to Hamilton to church you the must Rock.
0: maybe you introduced them to that place I
1: have actually never been there
0: oh, maybe okay. they heard
1: me talking about it I, I don't recall whether they got if I planted the seed mm-hmm. about Dave, talking about David Overholt but I have never actually been to a Sunday night you just service. went to this, to the amphitheater thing. No, David Overholt was oh, the guest speaker at okay. this youth retreat, right? Gotcha. So that was my exposure to David Overholt. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so this was when I would have been around 19, when they were going to that Sunday night church in Hamilton uh, and so on. But, yeah, like some of the timelines are a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, but, for sure. But, yeah, very interesting. I I remember distinctly that was a very awkward season for me, especially from, I was 16... Uh, when I came to a personal relationship and understanding of my faith in Christ. Uh, and then until I was, especially till I was 18, because uh, I was 18 when I moved to Texas, so then it kind of gave me a fresh start. Mm-hmm. And I went over there, I got, I mean, yeah, John Jansen and I moved together and we were close friends, but we all knew why we were going there. That's because that's where John's girlfriend is. And when I w- got there, then it was more awkward than ever because I was obviously the third wheel. Mm-hmm. I needed to find my new friends or find new friends, and I did. Uh, went to a very good church there and so it kind of gave me a fresh start but prior to going to Texas so from the time I was 16 till I was 18 those two years I think were some of the most awkward years for me really because yeah I was I had such a hunger such a hunger and thirst uh, for learning more for the Word of God and and just Uh, Just a deep, deep desire for intimacy with Christ and knowing more. And And were you getting it? uh, I would say, uh, if I look back, I would say yes. As good as could be expected for somebody who was not plugged into a community.
0: You weren't part of a church yet? Not
1: really. It was awkward for many reasons. One, because my friend group... like us whatever I was the only one that was pr- a professing believer at that point John
0: was kind of secretively Se- secretively <laughs>
1: but uh, I was the only open Christian at that point and so but yeah you guys were my friends where else am I going to go that was it led to some awkwardness the second reason it was so awkward is because I was sh- church shopping yeah. so I was so hungry for the word I had such a desire for growth and and all those things but yet, I still had old colony thinking in terms of outward appearance. Yeah. So every church I went to, and I literally, I think I went to every church in this area, several different churches in Leamington, every church I went to, I'd go there, oh, I'd see somebody, oh, that person has their hair dyed. Preacher's is wife's church, hair is short. Something. Yeah. Whatever, right? And it was like, nope, and nope. Or uh, I go to a church and I didn't see anything outrightly offensive to me, but nobody nobody noticed me. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, I'm a a young guy, just got my license, my own vehicle. I'm by myself as a loner, driving around church shopping, attending church, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, some churches I think I would have maybe approved in my immature understanding of what that is. But uh, I would have written it off simply because nobody noticed me, even greeted me or whatever. I was a nobody.
0: So it was a very awkward time for me that's interesting because uh now I'm, like again trying to fit these timelines together maybe it's not super important to anybody else but to me it kind of is because you and i drove to Leamington together Leamington together for at least a whole like five a or season. six months like yep. we tried to find girlfriends and we visited your cousins and stuff like that and you were driving already i mean yep. I remember one time that The box of your pickup truck lifting up and flying out of the (laughs) out of the pickup. The liner, the bed liner. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, But anyway, so you were sixteen, and I was spending time with you. You must have been contemplating these things way more than I realized. I was very young, and I was just I was completely sworn to old colony. Like there was no other options for me even.
1: Yeah, but
0: here's another aspect that hearing you say that that just
1: registered for me. Uh, If you know me well, especially back then, like fear of man. Even though, yeah, I had come to a personal faith, anybody that would have been at all, if I would have felt they were antagonistic towards me at all, and I would have sensed that from you a little bit, right? Because, For sure. Because especially like your family was always very outspoken. Your parents were very outspoken, very clear. Like you didn't have to ever guess where you stood in, in your parents' books or in your books. Mm-hmm. You just kind of knew, right? So me, and I knew how, and I, was, I thought the same way prior to this, right? I knew full well... That in your mind, and many other people's minds, I was now in Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, during that time, so what just clicked to me now, even though you and I and my Ford Ranger would have had many trips to Leamington together, I would have been very reserved in actually sharing my faith with you because I didn't want backlash. Because I didn't know how to deal with conflict. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, as soon as there was any kind of antagonism, like I would just shut down almost whatever yeah. right whatever right so I would have been very reserved in sharing that with anybody unless I sensed there was an openness to it right then I was if there was an openness then I was Whoo. yeah but if there was any sense of resistance nope because I know
0: John Vaman and I him we spent a lot more time together after that right uh, and he got saved after his mom and, dad, and brother died and he just went like over the top, zealous, like shouting hallelujah wherever he went and yeah. carrying his Bible. He hit a baseball. I hit that one for Jesus. Like he yeah, was yeah. just really extreme. Yeah. Like. And so I was always trying to, to, to attack him. And he would take it because he would argue back with me, right? Yeah. He really appreciated my parents and he had had good conversations with them. But now he was enlightened. He was understanding these things. And I was just like, nope, old colony, old colony. You know, if you study the Bible you're going to become a schnäffje Yeah, That's the di- direct l- translation, right? Yeah. Scripturally taught. Yeah, And so if you're scripturally taught, then you're a Pharisee. You're a hypocrite. Or like along yeah. the same lines. The scribes right? and Pharisees. That's right. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so yeah, I, I just argued with him. And I think probably, I mean, I already know that m- naturally speaking, my mannerisms, my character, my upbringing, genetically, all that kind of stuff, it kind of predisposes me to be it too in the face of people so often i'm slowly kind of learning sometimes but when i hold something that i feel like is true that i have to proclaim it i have to share it and mm-hmm. it's it's like obvious and that even probably obviously disrupted our relationship when you first heard that i got saved you kind of reached into my life john bamman did, and we got together a time or two and it just i was young and zealous and arrogant and it just kind of <laughs> pushed you well, off right so that's uh, it's quite a long trek there when you think of it in those terms but yeah. yeah, Texas uh, transformed things. Helped you to kind of find yourself a little bit more, and then you came back, and that's when you started attending Spring or
1: Yes. So yeah, Texas really was. I would, I would say it was foundational uh, to my growth, um, in the sense that uh, the church I plugged into somehow, and this is a weird, it's looking back like i just don't know how what else to call it but to, to literally use the term it was a god thing mm-hmm. uh, because because of the brokenness in my home growing up and never not having a good father figure or really parent figures and whatever that's a whole other story i i recognize now looking back that i was just so hungry for uh, a parental figure in my life for mm-hmm. some kind of direction and for i was really hungry for discipleship and mentorship is what i was hungry for And so when I started attending this church in Seminole, Texas, it was a church of 400 plus people. With one, I think only one paid pastor, and and I think maybe a a part-time secretarial staff or something. But a church of that size, how in the world would the pastor notice me? Yeah, why would he even recognize you? He did. Hmm. And he went out of his way to make time for me. And he began mentoring me and uh and i mean i only lived in texas seven months so it's not like looking back it felt like it was a long time but yeah. it was only it was a short time right but in those months that i was there um the mentoring that i received in those months were actually quite foundational for me because you have to recognize that i had nothing even remotely like it prior to that in my life right, right. like any kind of christian teaching ongoing mentoring discipleship anything that even looked like discipleship had been absent, because even the three years prior, because this time I would have been 19, so even the three years prior to that of being a Christian, uh, I was kind of a lone ranger out, I I was searching and, you know, church shopping. I wasn't plugged into a solid Christian community, you know, uh, with my friends, all of us were learning and whatever, right? So this was the first time I was experiencing discipleship. I see. And so it was really foundational, but it was so hard for me what to move back, because what was interesting. So as much as I appreciated this pastor, his name was Dave Dave Clausen, or is Dave. I've Claussen. heard the name so many times. Yeah, Dave, Cla- Pastor Dave Clausen. He's well known in the Texas area, and and uh, and so it was interesting. I appreciated him so much, but yet he asked all the right questions, or should I say, at the time, wrong questions. Okay. He asked the right questions to get me to dig a little bit deeper. And to take my faith a little more serious and to uh, to learn uh, to actually live out my faith I in see. many ways. And one of the things uh, that he would ask me is, so you're living here. Why are you here? Are you legal? No. Oh, so you're working under the radar, working illegally. Are you planning on paying taxes? Well, no. And so, okay, so really you're living a lie. So I you're see. growing in your faith. But you're really like he would kind of, but he never, he never came out and said, you have to move or you can't work here. You can't, he would just ask the right question Hmm. or whatever. And it was just this conviction started growing and it became actually a burning conviction that I can't, if I can't work here, if I have to fly under the radar and lie about my status, avoid authorities Hmm. That this is wrong. I just, I couldn't, my conscience would not rest. So you would have stayed there. I, if if I, and I literally, and I am not exaggerating when I say, I had nights where I wept, and I begged, and I pleaded with God to give me away, and to give me the peace to stay there. I see. And it never came. And so that was my answer for me, and I'm like, I have to pack up and move back home. And it was the last thing I wanted. I see. Because at home, I didn't have... A Christian community. Before I moved to Texas, at home there was still brokenness in my in my uh, familiar in my family home, right? And my parents and stuff. And that's not where I wanted to be. You know, every fiber of my being wanted to be in
0: Texas. I see. First
1: place I was getting mentored and yep. experiencing discipleship, experiencing Christian
0: community, like almost like a father figure. Yeah,
1: all these things. It was the last thing I wanted, but yet uh, out of sheer desperation to literally. To want to please my heavenly Father and to walk in faithfulness—that was what literally got me to the point that um, I, I, I have to move back to Canada. I remember
0: some very tough choices like that for myself, not as far as where to move, but when you're changing churches, maybe or you know certain yeah. decisions that need to be made. That's that's extremely big at the time, right? At, oh,
1: at the time it was my world, like and I. But that time I had my my black cavalier yeah. and I that drive from Texas to home. Yeah, uh, I in, in, whatever that's a twenty four hundred kilometer drive. I didn't stop I for the night. I didn't get a motel. I think I pulled over to the rest area. D- in the, d- the duration of that drive, I think I pulled over for probably four or five like half hour catnaps wow. or whatever. But I I I was listening to worship music. And uh, do you remember the Wow albums? They would come out with Wow yeah. albums, all the the biggest worship hits for the previous year or whatever. I had my WoW CD and different CDs listening to them. Super and, emotional? Oh, man. I, 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 can, <laughs> I don't think it's an overstatement to say that I was crying 50% on the drive home. Yeah. And it was just, it was... What a development stage, right? Oh, so, but yeah, I, looking back, honestly, that was, I think, like, I was forced to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And it was a choice of whether or not to... To obey a conviction that the Holy Spirit was laying on me, and I honestly think that's more formative than what I even give it credit for. Often, because Absolutely. it's a big deal. Like, especially like we live in a culture and society where, in North America, where, I mean, things have changed now compared to because what we're talking about here. This is this ago. is twenty two, twenty three years ago, right? So things have shifted since then. But even then, I mean, our evangelical culture in North America was quite watered down in many respects that, you know, you could say you had an experience, you could say I'm born again, uh, have this come to Jesus moment, and then kind of hold on to that moment, but then kind of live your life. There's no real fruit, no discipleship, real, uh, real discipleship that's ongoing, right? And so in hindsight, I think that was actually a pivotal moment in my faith, where I had to come to terms with, am I going to do my will, or am I willing an to surrender all and and do God's will? And and in it, in terms of just discipleship, I think that was a more pivotal moment than even that experience at youth camp, because mm-hmm. the experience at youth camp was actually yes, it was a surrendering, but it was it, <clears throat> I had I, I, I didn't have to give anything up. The only thing I gave up was my sin. That's right. Like just it was, rejoicing. like it's it was, exciting. it was the where my eyes were open that oh, God actually loves me. He, there is somebody in the universe that actually loves me. Mm-hmm. Of all things and of all people, it's God that loves me, right? And, right. and so it was. It wasn't. A, I have a difficult decision to make here. It mm-hmm. was where my the scales were finally lifted. I got
0: it, and it clicked. Interesting. Where here, this was a pivotal discipleship moment. I wonder. Like some people, it's just automatic. The moment they get born again, it's just like, like you, you. Your hunger started and you just wanted to know and to grow. But how many times can you deny doing what you know you ought to do, but you really don't feel like it, right? Like say you had just said, you know what, I, I, that, this is where I want to be. I found a girl maybe or I found a church. I found something and I'm not going to do what I know I ought to do. Like how long before, that's almost like grieving the Spirit of God and not, yeah. not you know, heart kicking against the pricks like, yeah. like the Apostle Paul did. And I wonder how long Christians, even good, solid Christians that start off zealous, their faith and their zeal can kind of be turned down quick by not heeding yeah. the Spirit's directions, the Word of God, good counsel.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and see, and just hearing you say that reminds me of the Eugene Peterson's words. He's not alive anymore, but uh, he's famous for many reasons. But one of his, the one of the things that he wrote about that I appreciate the most about him, is he talks about a long, a long obedience in the same direction. That's his definition for faith. Mm-hmm. He says faithfulness to God is a is a long obedience in the same direction where, and he, I mean, he expounds on that, and he says, obviously, you know, we are not perfect, and we do get things wrong, and sometimes we make decisions that in hindsight we could see not the best decisions, but at the end of the day, it's about our posture. It's about, is our the posture of our hearts and our minds, are we determined to, to be faithful, mm-hmm. to decide to obey God, no matter how difficult the decision is, and this long obedience in the same direction, and then all of a sudden you look back, and you see growth. And you yeah. see fruit. Where in the moment, maybe it was suffering. Maybe in the moment, it was it was difficulty. And it was pain or grieving or whatever. But yeah, and, and, I, and I'm not claiming that since that pivotal discipleship moment that I've done everything right. And no, of course. No, of course not. But it's,
0: I, it is those extreme moments where you feel like you're at a crossroads and you're, you're beside yourself almost. For me, it was a baptism thing. Mm-hmm. And I know some people might not agree with it, but I knew I was lost and completely unsaved when i got baptized so when i became a christian it was like night and day mm-hmm. i went from being a child of the devil to yeah. being a child of god and i'm like baptism started entering my mind i'm like there's there's nothing in the bible i can find to justify me not getting baptized my wife was beside herself afraid for me to do it yeah. my parents were calling her saying if you guys do this if you let your husband do this he's locking the doors to the kingdom of god yeah. for you and for himself and he's going to hell. My mom would have terrible dreams and nightmares about me, right? Uh And I'm just like, I can't see any biblical reason to not do it. And I'm absolutely convinced that a Christian should get baptized. And so I went ahead and did it. And it was one of those moments, right? Where you're just like, this is the hardest thing in the world. I'm down on my knees constantly, not knowing how to talk to my wife or my family or anybody, but I'm going to go through with this. And it was like, I knew, for me it felt like obedience to God in spite of everybody. You know, if you don't leave father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, then you're yeah. not worthy of me, right? And I don't know. I was young and immature and overzealous, but it was still one of those monumental shifts where I'm like, I'm gonna do it.
1: But it was still it was a deep conviction. Yeah. It was something that the spirit was convicting you of and you were still at a fork in the road, mm-hmm. a type of fork, right? Where you had to make a
0: decision that was not gonna be popular with many people. Yeah. It's obviously not a great comparison, but I think if Abraham on the mountain with his son Isaac, and I'm sure he was wrestling. Like, should I do it? He goes and ties yeah. his son up, places him on the altar, and like, God, this doesn't make any yeah. sense. Pulls out the knife, and, and then God's like, No, hang on. You know, now I know that you fear me. Now I know. You know, I know for sure. And yeah. it's like there's got to be some of those moments in life where you you're kind of forced into the corner. Are you going to obey me and heed the scripture, or are you gonna yeah. just deny it and go your own way? So Yeah. anyway. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it was Was huge. that like the starting points even of your mind starting to wrestle with sharing and preaching and teaching and discipling others? I think so. Because prior to that, like that discipleship growth, mentoring
1: that happened while I lived in Texas. And then, yeah, made that hard decision to come back to Canada. But things were different. So when I came back to Canada, I think I had grown enough in my faith and matured enough that I wasn't just slipping Back into some of my old ways because those awkward years from 16 to 19 and uh, prior to move to Texas when so I experienced the discipleship in those years even though I had such a hunger but I was still there was uh, you know at the time I know it wasn't intentional I wasn't intending to grieve God grieve the spirit. But I was still like, you You mentioned how you and I would drive the t- to Leamington. Well, why we were we doing it? You and I were looking for girlfriends. We didn't care really what the girls believed mm-hmm. as long as they were attractive and they liked us and we liked them and whatever. Like there's there's spots on our history that both of us wouldn't be proud of or whatever. But I was a believer in that already. I was born again. And I was, ma- I was still making foolish decisions Absolutely. and fi- trying to find my identity. What I say now is I was finding I was trying to find my identity in relationship status,
0: hmm. in
1: a relationship status with a girl. Yeah, I was not finding my identity in Christ, even though I had experienced it, uh, uh, the new birth, and I was walking with God, and you know I was praying and reading my you Bible You did regularly. walk away from
0: parties and drinking. Yeah,
1: and I was stuff like that. So I, so those were some of the lines that I made clear. Okay, no more partying, no more drinking. So that was a clear line for me. But my Thorn in the flesh. My struggle, my hang-up was still the dating thing, Mm -hmm. the relationships thing. And I was still chasing girls and looking for meaning and fulfillment. And I think really looking for affection. Yeah. uh, Yeah, looking for affirmation and affection. So I was still making foolish decisions uh, and looking for my identity in the wrong place, right? But that's where, when I came back from Texas, that discipleship that happened there, I can... I think that's the area where, in hindsight, where I can see the most fruit that came, the most immediate fruit that came out of the discipleship was that even though I still wrestled and I desperately still wanted to find the right girl and I wanted, had such a desire to get married and whatever, but I was content enough and determined enough and experienced enough in my relationship with God that I knew that that was far better than than being in a relationship with a girl that was inappropriate
0: or that I shouldn't be in. Now you were actually examining the girl.
1: All that. So now I was determined that I'm not just jumping into relationships. Uh, And I'm not... And you know what is... It's so interesting to me that when I came back from Texas, I had made up my mind that I'm not playing that game again. I'm not going back to the old Abe, just chasing after girls. And uh, I knew where I needed to look for my identity, even though it was still a struggle at some time. But by the grace of God, I just... I was able to, interesting whatever, right? And
0: so. Well, I know this was around the time when Lisa and I would have been dating already, and we started seeing you guys and Pete and Helen and, and some others, and I forget what age you guys, you and Margaret, would have started dating, but um, we started seeing you guys promoting this idea of purity in, in dating, and we mm. just thought, absolutely absurd, ridiculous. <laughs> how, how can you guys even think that way? Who do you think you are? I remember seeing, must have been Pete and Helen, driving with John Bamman in the back seat, and part of the reason was to kind of chaperone them almost, yeah, yeah. right? And maybe a lot of that purity culture thing was overboard and a little bit uh, oppressive at times, even where somebody's watching you. Some churches were way overboard with it. Yeah. But yeah. the concept of this is the one person I hope to share the rest of my life with, but I'm going to make sure, and we're going to stay pure and walk in holiness and try, and yeah. it just was a f- totally foreign concept. Yeah. Stay away from having sex, that I understood, but everything else is, is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I mean, you, how old were you then when you and Margaret started dating? So I was twenty when Margaret and I started dating. So I know we got married the same month. Yeah, and I was 20, 19 when we got married.
1: I moved back to Ontario in May of May of two thousand in two thousand May of two thousand. I moved back to Ontario, and I was successful in not being able to enter into any dating relationships. Uh, until I had reflected and prayed and decided that I wanted to pursue Margaret, and that was September of 2021, the following year.
0: 2001.
1: Or 2001, sorry, not 21, 2001. So I was able to, whatever that was, 14, 15, 16 months there, uh, be free from any (laughs) burdens of inappropriate, whatever, right? But it was a very, again, growing season for me, right? And so, yeah, it was, uh, I think, July and August of 2001 is where I wrestled like crazy like i was interested in margaret is this the right one i didn't want to because my history was just jumping into relationships jumping into relationships right works at the time and whatever right so i took that decision very seriously and uh yeah and when i finally asked her i think margaret said hallelujah it's about time i've been waiting for you for a year (laughs) (laughs) or whatever right and so she had been uh desiring a relationship with me for a long time already right and i picked up on some of the hints but uh uh, but she was very respectful, and she didn't pursue me or whatever, and she wanted it to be a God thing, and she wanted nice. it to be me initiating and whatever. That's and so.
0: Cool. And then twenty uh, July 20, 2002, we both ended up getting married both within a week married. or two of each other. We yeah. were July 11th. No, July 28th, sorry. Yeah, and we're July 20th. All right, so a week apart.
1: A week apart, yeah. Jake yep. and Melody also. Yep, we got married on Saturday, left Sunday for our honeymoon, we came back Friday, the following Friday, or Saturday morning from our honeymoon, and you guys got married on Sunday. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think we attended your wedding, did we? I don't think
0: we did yours either, so I'm not even sure. Yeah,
1: I'll, I'll, so I won't hold it against you, to so hold it against <laughs> me.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anyway, a lot has transpired now. Obviously, you've been preaching for a number of years as a as a lay minister, and then now full time for the last eight years. You said. The last eight years, yeah. And uh, you've got children all grown up. One's in university.
1: Yep. Nah, uh, Micah. He's nineteen. He's in university, and Chloe. She's seventeen. She's finishing up uh, grade twelve this year, and uh, Carly. She's thirteen. She's in grade eight. So.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the reason. Um, I have people on, and the podcast title is called In Light of the Gospel. Fair. And obviously, the gospel started to make sense at 16 for you. But um, I know that through the years, the, the whole idea of the cross has become much more central in yeah. your thinking as far as how to deal with relationships and all that. Is there any kind of monumental thing where you're focused? Like for me, I'm thinking, I got saved, and I'm like, oh, we got to witness, we got to pray, we got to read the Bible, we got to do this, we got to do that. And all these exciting things started to appear. But it wasn't until like, I don't know, three or four years into my Christian life where I'm like, actually, it's really just about Jesus. Mm-hmm. The initial thing that got me saved is the focal point throughout all my Christian life. So the cross became really central and kind of the focus of my of my gaze, you know, three or four years after I got saved. Was there something that kind of brought you around to a more complete understanding of the gospel, the cross? Um,
1: I would say... Yeah, and this is not much different than what I've said already, but uh, really that discipleship time there in Texas... He, and then, he knew the gospel well. Oh, very, very well, very well. And uh, there was no legalism, I would say no legalism. Sooner he would have been accused uh, of being liberal from somebody who kind of leans to the legalistic side, who would have heard him preach, they would have sooner accused him of being too loose or too mm-hmm. or whatever, but yet very, very solid in the gospel, in, in the centrality of the cross. Uh, and where that fits into the salvation story, and our new birth, and what our walk should look like, right? So that was very clear, uh, but also then when I moved back from Texas, then I started attending Strafford EMC, uh, because both my brothers, I have an older brother and a younger brother, and both of them had started attending this church while I lived mm, in Texas. Okay. And so they invited me uh, to start attending there, and the pastor uh, was John John Lorna Wall. Um, yep. John Wall, as many people know him, he's pastoring at Layman's in Mexico, big Low German mega church, which we never imagined would happen. Here <laughs> we had this Low German mega mega church, and but yet John Wall, uh, his humble beginnings in ministry were here in Stratford, Ontario. Him and his wife were in some kind of I don't remember if it was lay minister or deacon at Mount Salem Church, and then when Mount Salem intentionally planted Stratfordville, okay. it was supposed to be a Low German speaking church. So John, Laura, and I were sent there to lead that church. So that's where John Wall's humble beginnings of full-time ministry were. And and so when I started attending there, uh, he just, he right away picked up on, I'm not sure what, something well, about me. And he started yeah. mentoring me as well. And I think that, because John had very clear, to the centrality of the cross. And Even does. then already? Uh, yeah. Because
0: yeah. I, I know Steve a lot better than yeah. John. And Steve left being really excited about Christian yeah. the christian lingo and all that but it wasn't until he had been in mexico for a while to where he all of a sudden realized what the gospel truly was right yeah and then became very christ-centered right so. yeah
1: yeah and i'm sure if we were to ask john uh, he, might, he would he yeah. would i'm sure he would recognize an, an evolution of sorts as well in his own growth and understanding maturity of the centrality of the cross right and, mm-hmm. and all that but in my mind back then like it was that's what it was right when he was mentoring me and and mm-hmm. so on. So that was definitely very formative years for me as well. And then, uh, and not long after that, cause that would have been 2001 that I started attending there. And, uh, and in 2003, I was asked to do a minister and training program, which or we're part of a bigger denomination, right? So the denomination at that time had a one year program was called minister and training mm-hmm. and had various facets that were part of the program. And uh, and he uh, asked me to consider doing that, and I did, and all that stuff. It was very form- It was all very formative for me. He was um, priming you, eh? Uh, he definitely was, for sure. Um, so yeah, it but really coming to the place where you just recognize that Jesus is enough. Mm-hmm. That w- what He accomplished on the cross is enough, and that that my identity rests solely in. In God's adoption of me back into his family and in no other accomplishments or performances I for me I I can't speak of one moment where that became for me that's just been a progression of of growing
0: and maturing I guess that's natural and should be but I think as you grow your focus should be more and more narrow in a sense right where at the same time you're broadening your mind you're opening your mind you're realizing how wrong you've been in so many areas but the, 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 your, your focus and your gaze kind of gets more and more tightened yeah. because it's, it's got to be fixed. I, one of the, my quotes I probably quote most frequently is from Charles Spurgeon where he said, I looked to the, to the cross and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked to the dove and it flew away. Because you know, there's so many results from looking to the cross that are really, really extraordinary. And they're really good but they're not worth fixating on. They're not worth focusing on, right? So for me, the idea of sins forgiven, Mm -hmm. I understood at the moment I got saved. But then I realized that not only are my sins forgiven, but I'm dead to sin and freed from it through the cross. And not only that, like when I have an issue with a brother, I can forgive him based on the cross. And I can love my wife the way Christ loved the church. And then the cross kind of fits its way into everything. Where a lot of people, at least from my observation, they cross is what gets them into Christianity and then they kind of put it off to the side and then they do Christians. Mm. They do Christian life, right? Whereas the cross should be the central thing in every area of your life, right? So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And for and actually I would say in the last 5 6 years I have seen additional fruit of of that aspect of you know the cross alone, Christ alone, my identity in Christ alone. I have seen additional aspects of fruit of that in my life on an emotional side Mm. in the last five or six years where I think cognitively and mentally, uh, I think my eyes have been there and I think I've had a decent understanding of that for most of my Christian life. Uh, But on an emotional level, I think I've really grown in that area the most uh, in the last five or six years in the sense of where I... Have been able to deal with some of my baggage from as a kid, my upbringing, stuff that I didn't even realize that was bothering me, but it was. And and, it, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not here. I am not. Uh, um, what's the word? I am not emphasizing that we need to be looking at our past all the time and not become camp, a psychologist. or something. I, I think we do need to look at our past when when there's stuff that is affecting us. But you look at it for the process, for the purpose of processing it, dealing with it. If there is sins that need to be confessed, if there's stuff that needs to be repented of, you do it. If there's trauma that has happened that is affecting you, you process that, you deal with it, but you don't camp out there. You 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 deal with it and then you move on. And right? you see the,
0: the solution at the cross again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: And where I have been able to... So let me just give you a practical example. Um... As, as early as seven, eight years ago, so this is even after I, I even entered into full-time ministry. So this is a bit of a confession here. Like how can somebody who is getting paid to be a pastor struggle with some of the things that I did, but I did. So this is an open confession here. Um, so with the example I'm about to give here, and that is this. Um, that if I would struggle with something, uh, and especially if my mental battle was... At a particularly low point where I was really wrestling with anxiety or uh, feelings of depression or maybe even just temptation or anything, right, I felt like I couldn't find victory or get rest until I went for coffee with a brother. And I'd go for coffee with somebody and I kind of unburdened myself,, oh, hmm. they kind of affirm me. There, now I can have peace again. Now I can, with confidence, go forth and I can minister, I can do whatever. And uh, it just, and over the years, and through the help of, uh, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit has been at work, but for me, uh, I am no longer ashamed to talk about counseling. Like for me, counseling has been a pivotal uh, point for me, and it helped me in many ways. It has helped me, right? And so it has helped me to come to, to deal with some of the stuff that I didn't realize were affecting me, uh, where I've been able to come to the place where now, using that illustration I just gave you, where I'm almost on the other extreme. Things can bother me. I can struggle with things or whatever, but I'm totally content not sharing with anybody. I'm, I can keep it to myself. and Because? It's because I know who I am. Mm-hmm. Because I know that the cross is enough. I, I know where my identity is and that i even though there's maybe external pressures there's this stress this stress uh whether it's external whether it's internal whether it's temptation whether it's stuff i'm not confident about because i don't know how to deal with it a new area of ministry a a crisis and whatever the case is i don't have to discuss it with somebody uh, because I can go to the... I always did. It's not that I didn't pray before. I hear you. I feel like I know what you're saying. But it's like... I'm content. And I I, I can... I feel like... And I don't do this well all the time. But when I finally get to the point, I can... I feel like I can sit on the lap of the Father, so to speak. Mm. And just give it to Him. And I can have peace with it. Or whatever, right? Uh,
0: That I don't have to go and process with somebody else. Yeah um did it did it feel like it would change your status before god even when you had these times where you had to uh because you you already knew you were accepted yeah I in spite of all
1: your faults and sin and failures and that's the interesting part i don't i don't recall ever wrestling with it in that sense that i felt like that i was wrestling like am i saved am i really a child of god that wasn't seemingly my
0: struggle i would, I would have the, the struggle of trying to make up for it you know back to the works mentality a little bit where i've uh, I, sh- I should read more i should pray more i should go confess yeah something, you know yep.
1: Yeah. and i think uh i would do the same thing back then right and uh, so where yeah like i would say i think i have ex- experienced as a result of me being able to put my trust in my status as a child of God, that I, uh, that I know who I belong to, that I know that I'm a child of God, that it, in the last five or six years, it has amounted to more emotional maturity mm. where before, you know, uh, in my head, I had the answer that was there, but it didn't necessarily amount to emotional maturity oh, I see. or whatever. And, Yeah, and there's different schools of thought on that whole thing. I've been listening to this podcast by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. I always struggle to pronounce his last name. And he has, uh, his whole ministry is called uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Okay. And his claim is that you cannot separate spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. He says somebody can be in ministry in their whole life. They can be a teacher and preacher of the word and do it well. Somebody that does it as well as Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon or or whoever, right? Mm-hmm. And and but yet, and they can expound the Word of God with great inspiration and be a profound speaker and charisma and all these things. Uh, but if there's not emotional maturity, what you'll see sometimes in those types of people is that. You know, when just the right thing triggers them, they fly off the handle. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. driving down the car, somebody cuts them off and they have this moment, they fly off the handle or in front of their wife or kids or there's little things, these, you know, it's not every day, it's not all the time, but there's these little things that will trigger them that will reveal their emotional maturity. Which kind of aligns with their
0: true spiritual maturity.
1: Exactly. And that's what Peter Scazzaro would say. He says, you can't be, you can't claim spiritual maturity, uh, if your emotional maturity is, is revealing Interesting. that you have all this stuff going on, that you don't know how to say no to people. You have such uh, a desire to please people that you can never say no because it's an indication of emotional immaturity. Uh, sometimes we think of emotional insu- immaturity just as people who fly off, know, the fly off the handle, that can't control their tempers or you know that... Th- puke their emotional baggage all over people by spilling their guts with all their struggles or whatever and whatever but emotional immaturity is also that we are looking to man so much for our affirmation that we can never even say no to people and have a healthy balance in our lives Uh, we can't we don't know how to practice Sabbath properly we don't practice Sabbath properly uh, as God instructed us because we can't say no to people you're not shutting off because you might disappoint somebody, and that's particularly a struggle often for people who are in full-time ministry, because they feel like their their whole that's their whole life. And yeah. so, and and as men, I think men struggle with this particularly. I think women probably too, but I think men more so, where we struggle often with finding our identity in our work, in our accomplishments, what we're able to perform or do, mm. right? And so, and, and people who are in ministry are no different. It's, it's easy to actually start finding your identity in being able to help people. In saying, in being the yes person. Yeah.
0: And, and that leads to actually emotional immaturity. So now knowing and feeling, even a feeling, because like, emotionally, right? Feeling more of that security in who you are in Christ helps you to just kind of navigate those. Not that you would um, neglect confessing faults to a brother if it needed no, to be confessed. No. But that you don't need to be constantly sharing to get affirmation or confirmation, or yeah. like, like almost like a, a Protestant confessional, right? Where you got to go yeah. to the priest and confess your sins, right? And yeah. now there's there's full time access and peace with God the Father. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. absolutely. Well, I mean, we're kind of getting close to where we usually try to wrap it yeah. up, but um, I'm curious if you don't mind answering this question, what do you see for the next? Five to ten years, I've been considering that quite a bit, your kids are mostly wow. getting to be grown up and you've been at this church preaching, teaching steadily for eight plus years. Yeah, full time eight years, but I've been in ministry at this church Almost now 20. already
1: for, for 17, 18 years. Yeah. yeah. So the next five, ten years, good question. How much do I say on air? Exactly. That's
0: why I knew, <laughs> I, it's not like a, you're going to just give us everything yeah, that you're yeah. planning to do, but is there anything monumental coming up?
1: I don't think so. Um, my desire is to be faithful, obviously. and I know that sounds a bit cliche, like whatever, but I, I mean that in the sense of, you know, I do think a healthy church is a church that's not constantly changing leaders. So I I do want to be in a, if the Lord continues to sustain and direct and and uh, lead in that way, I I see myself in the next five to ten years still being where I am today, um, in terms of location. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so on pastoring at Straffel EMC um, but yeah there are times when I I do dream of uh, doing work um, in a nonprofit actually um, doing work for uh, for ministries nonprofit ministries that very specifically have like kind of one thing they do like when you do church ministry when you're pastoring you're kind of forced to wear, Every hat that you can possibly imagine when it comes to ministry, like when it, whatever, whether it's preaching or teaching, whether it's conflict resolution, whether it's evangelism, whether it's prayer, whether it's marriage counseling, whether it's dealing with emotional stuff, whether it's administrative stuff, like you, there's a little bit of everything, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it just gets tiring that you're trying to do a little bit of everything and not being great at any one of them, mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, so there's a part of me that sometimes dreams of working for at least a season of my life, whether it's a year, whether it's three years, a season of my life uh, working for a nonprofit somewhere where I'm specifically doing one thing. Not one thing that you have in mind already. Um, not specifically. I do dream sometimes of Midnight uh, Disaster Service. They're a uh, disaster relief organization. And so some, because of my construction background, I think, hey, They're always looking for people, so yeah, I could go volunteer for six months, just slugging a swinging a hammer for them. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I would enjoy that. But I think if I were to devote my a season of my life to it, I think I would uh, do it more in the capacity of that I would like oversee a project for MDS. Mm -hmm. That I would, you know, where is the latest disaster? Where do you need three houses built in one community where there was a flood and whatever? Something like that, where I would. Where it's where you're still doing a, t- a ministry and you do it in a, and I long to do it among a people group that's a completely different culture, okay. different race, different culture. Uh, I have had, I have had, I would call it a huge privilege of here and there just a little bit being exposed to some different cultures, and I can honestly say I'm, uh, it makes me richer. It, it make, I'm the better for it. Uh, and I, so I do desire some season of my life okay. to work somewhere where it's a com- where I'm challenged with a complete different culture and race, uh, and just yeah learn learn yes. from people who view life, the Christian journey different than I have come from maybe a Catholic background, or maybe from an Anglican background, a uh, different race, whatever, right? So, yeah,
0: we'll see what, nice. what the next 10 years brings. Well, if uh, I hear some news about you going somewhere across the country on that, I know what's, what you've been planning and thinking. So. Yeah, you know, maybe it's just during a sabbatical for six yeah. months or something, yeah. right? Yeah. So, no, I think that could be very profitable. No books coming up or anything like that. I am not a writer. <laughs> I actually
1: do have friends, colleagues in the ministry who are writers who have published books or whatever, and... And sometimes it feels like in the evangelical world that that's that's your stamp of accomplishment. That's what you, you can write a book, arrived. right? But yeah. but I don't i e- I'm not even striving for that. Like I have unless the Lord intervenes and puts some some very specific message on my heart that I have burning passion, that I need to write a book about this, I don't foresee me ever writing a book. I agree, yeah. but anyway.
0: Yeah. anyway. Very good. Appreciate it. It's been
1: a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.